Heavenly Father, we thank you. This uh, room has become a place like many other uh, physical locations that uh, has become precious to us. We identify it as a place where we meet brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is the room in which we often pray together, share things that are on our hearts, rejoice together, weep together, and of late a place where we've gathered together to learn some more about the mysteries of your word. And we pray tonight again as we study together the doctrine of the church as the body of Christ, we ask for your blessing. Everything we do, if it's simply done in our own strength and for unworthy motives, profits us nothing except perhaps to puff us up in our own estimation. But uh, we ask again tonight for that spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to so so minister with our spirits, witness with our spirits, uh, that we are the children of God. Uh, grant your blessing, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you turn uh, to page, uh, well, then there are no numbers, but if you turn uh, to the first full page, uh, you'll see uh, number one, schemes for studying the church, schemes There we go. Schemes for studying the church. Uh, And these are just three um, groupings of um, many ideas that you find in the scriptures and in particular in the New Testament. Uh, The first being the church as the people of God, the covenant people of God, the people called out and called into uh, fellowship um, with each other, and associated with that, and I'm not going to spend any time, I want to go to the third one, uh, Christ's body, uh, but the churches, the people of God associated with that are a, a sort of group of ideas, God's worshiping community, so when we think of the people of God, we think of the people of God worshiping together and issues of Doxology, issues of praise, um, issues of liturgy, worship, the mode and manner of worship, and sadly the worship wars, as we sometimes refer to it. Uh, so, so that would be one of the ideas. Uh, or the people of God with God dwelling in their midst. So think of uh, the idea of the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. And, and, and we sometimes use that verse in Matthew 18, although it's actually in the context of church discipline, but uh, where two or three are gathered together uh, in my name, there I am in the midst, uh, God in the midst of his people. We often pray, don't we, on a Sunday morning, for example, or whenever we meet in a more formal setting like this evening, that God would, well, sometimes we use the language of the Psalms, that God would come down. Uh, that, he would, that we would feel his presence in our midst. We're praying for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
as the representative agent of the Lord Jesus to be, uh, to be uh, among us. Or we think of God's um, chosen family. Uh, when, we, when we gather together, we, we think of ourselves as family. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We, we meet around a table uh, just, as, just as a family meets around a table for a meal, so, so we as the gathered community of God's people meet um, around uh, a table as God's chosen family. Actually, that's one of the most uh, meaningful and precious things for me personally. Um, at, the, at the time when I became a Christian at 18, my, my, my parents were, were splitting up and so on and a great deal of dysfunctionality. Uh, and, and a sense of uh, uh, just a sense of, of not belonging uh, mixed with typical teenage adole- late adolescent gene stuff and hormone stuff, uh, which was a potent mixture. But when I became a Christian, I think that was the most meaningful thing of all to me that when I first went to a church where I met others who believed in Jesus, I immediately thought family. This is my family. I love my physical, earthly family, but, but this, this is a very special uh, place, I think, in, in my heart. Or, or uh, I'm, and I need to move on, but God's new creation, God's worldwide witness, uh, and all of that can be expanded, and we, we may expand on some of those themes later during the spring. Let's take another big idea uh, the church as the flock of Christ. So, so Christ as the shepherd of the sheep and, and the church as, as sheep, as the flock of Christ, um, given by the Father to the Son, gathered by the ministry of the Son through the Holy Spirit, gathering by mission to Jew and Gentile, glorifying by life and worship and glorified with its Lord. That would be one avenue certainly worth exploring. Um, Here's another, uh, the church as, and and three big concepts now coming together, body, bride, and building. And the only reason I've put these three together is because of the alliteration. Uh, They all begin with B. Uh, Christ's body, bride, and building. And we're certainly going to look at the church as Christ's bride as a separate study uh, later this spring. The idea of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And what does that mean? Uh, and, and the idea of the church as a building, not, not a physical building, but the body as being a building fitly framed together using Ephesians uh, sort of language. Um, but I, I want to think tonight especially of this concept of the church as Christ's body, the church as Christ's body. And let's, uh, let's look at some principal texts. Uh, first, of all, uh, first of all, in uh, Romans, Romans uh, 12 and verse 5, you, you remember uh, Romans um, you know, 1 to 11, the doctrinal part, 12 through 16, the application part, uh, 1 to 11 telling us what the gospel is, 12 through 16 telling us what the gospel is for, to, so that we might live out our lives 
in the light of everything that he has said in verses in chapters 1 through 11. So in chapter 12, he's just begun to do that. You remember how chapter Romans 12 begins. Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, uh, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Not just your minds, not just your wills or your spirits or, or some spiritual part of you, but your bodies. Your, your, your physical frame in, in, all of its, in all of its components. Uh, what a word that is in an increasingly sexually perverse uh, world. That, that the first thing that Paul says, you know what the gospel is for? So that you live out in your bodies a life that is glorifying to God. Right, so if, you're, if, you're, uh, if the issue is pornography, then Romans 12.1 needs to be written. Uh, cut it out, paste it on the screen of your computer. Uh, the purpose of the gospel is that your bodies are given for the glory of God. Uh, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he, he moves in verse 3 into a section where he begins to describe uh, some of the gifts of the church. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Verse 4, for as in one body, here's, here's the metaphor, as in one body we have many members, I have somewhat of a dysfunctional right arm at the minute, um, uh, and, and, and let me just tell you that's going to be the case for the next five weeks, so, so that, that's it, let's get past it. Um, but um, we have arms and legs and eyes and nose and ears and so on, Many, many members, but one body. And, and, and normally, and hopefully, everything is functioning normally as one cohesive body. There is the one and there's the many. Right? Van Til said, everything is about the one and the many. Um, I think it was Heraclitus, the, one of the very f earliest of the philosophers, who said everything, existence is about the relationship of the one and the many. Actually, it's, it's about God himself. He's one God and many, three persons. Right? So there you have it. And you see that reflected again in the church. There, there is something, there is the church as, an, as a single entity, the church. But there are also churches in the many, and, and then within the churches, the individual congregations, there are many individuals, and each with different gifts and abilities. So as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. There's, there's the idea. We are one body in Christ. And then in Corinthians, uh, and this, this metaphor uh, of Christ, of the church being the body of Christ, is a, is a Paul metaphor. This is not a John thing, it's not a Peter thing, it's actually a Paul thing. 
and, and, and only technically in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Now, there's another aspect to it. The body has a head uh, and the idea of headship because elsewhere in the Apostle Paul, we'll come to that in a minute, here's another text, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Uh, because there is one bread, right? Chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians deal with the issue of the Lord's Supper. It's one of those fascinating, interesting, for me, uh, mysterious things that uh, even though one, one believes that the Lord's Supper is an important part uh, of church life as, as one of the two sacraments given of the new covenant, the only place, the only place in the New Testament where you have any instruction about the Lord's Supper is in Corinth and there because of abuse. And, and Paul doesn't say anything about the Lord's Supper anywhere else in any of his, uh, his epistles. But in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now, because it doesn't work so well for us, uh, Paul, I think, is thinking literally of, of, of one loaf, uh, perhaps an unleavened um, piece of matzo bread or, or something of like that, but, but I think he is thinking the, the, the metaphor doesn't work if, if you're talking about individual little, little, little bits and, and we've become so germophobic. We've, we've gone from the, the illustration of the oneness. Uh, when we talk about the Lord's Supper in another session, we'll, we'll talk about how the, the, the importance of of, of the visual here of one cup and one loaf of bread, even though that's distributed among the, the, the many. Well, that's, that's the analogy that's, that's being used here. Because there is one bread, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So, so you, you have to imagine if you're going to do the visual thing, you, you, know, you, you, you come to one loaf and everybody tears out of that one loaf. Of bread, which is how I used to do the Lord's Supper before the whole issue of germophobia became an issue. Uh, and I, I really don't know if we can get back, and we probably can't get back to where we were. I wish we could. That's for another occasion. I know you have a thousand questions, but hold those questions for when we deal with the issue of the sacraments. But because, because Paul... If somebody could bring me a cup of water, that would be just great. And you will be an angel for doing it. Thank you. Um, because Paul is talking about um, the church as the body of Christ in the context of the Lord's Supper, this has given rise, particularly in Catholic theology uh, and, and um, medieval Catholic, thank you, medieval Catholic theology to uh, all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful ideas. Um, in the Latin Mass, for example, uh, the words hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. Um, it, it, you know, that was, that was, that's one of the reasons why uh, in traditional Catholicism the, the, the bread becomes a wafer because you can't have bits of the bread falling on the floor, so the wafer is kind of sticky and it doesn't, there are no bits, no crumbs. And that's why the priest puts it into the mouth or onto the tongue of the recipient so it doesn't fall on the floor. Because once it's consecrated, it is the body of Christ. And when you ingest 
the body of Christ, you yourself become part of the body of Christ. So in traditional Catholic theology, and for that matter, even in post-Vatican II Catholic theology, uh, since Pope, whatever he was, John VI or whatever, whatever he was, uh, wrote that famous thing called Lumen Genitum, I think, in the 1950s, leading up to Vatican II uh, in the 1960s. Um, that, that view is still prevalent, that you have the body of Christ as an extension of Christ himself, and, and not just in a spiritual sense, but actually in a physical sense, because you have Christ, but you have the bread now becoming the body of Christ, all albeit in an accidental way, to use the technical uh, language. But when you ingest the body, I mean, that's why the, the issue of the crumbs was so important, because if it fell on the floor, mice would eat it, and then you've got bits of the body of Jesus running through the rafters of the church and so on. I mean, that's, that's, why, that's why the consecrated bread had to be locked up in a, in a tabernacle, uh, a receptacle called a tabernacle. The wine wasn't so difficult. The priest just drank the wine, but nobody wants to eat all those wafers. So they were, they were put in, in a receptacle called the tabernacle. But if you eat that bread, you then become, by extension, a part of the physical body of Christ. So, so this affects Christology. Remember, we were talking about Christology and two natures, a divine nature. You're all following this now, right? This is way off target of what I was saying here. <laughs> but in Christology, we talk about a divine nature and a human nature, two, two natures. That human nature consists of the body of Jesus, which is in heaven, at the right hand of God, but also now physically extended, not just spiritually, but physically extended through the sacrament into the church itself and and. Certainly prior to Vatican II, that church was confined absolutely to the Roman Catholic Church. And outside of it, there was no possibility of salvation. Now, that got a, a, little, a little ambiguous in Vatican II and so on. But let me get back to my outline, 1 Corinthians 10. Right, so you've got, uh, and I, I, I was sort of expanding on on, on section two, the incarnational idea. Now, let me, let me say here, this is mine, right? Nobody, nobody sip from my cup here. Um, germophobia notwithstanding. Um, you know, evangelicals, uh, some, some of our own people can often speak of, of use the word incarnational, and, and often it's not clear what people mean when they talk about incarnational. Sometimes they just mean doing it in a, in a kind of lowly, self-denying spirit. But sometimes when, when people use the word incarnational, what, what the church as, as being incarnational, as an extension of the physical body, no. The church is the body of Christ, but in a spiritual sense. N- it is by the operation of the Holy Spirit indwelling us that, that we become children of God. And it's in that spiritual sense that we are the body of Christ. Now, it has physical dimensions. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But the idea of the relationship of the church to Christ here, uh, we shouldn't... We shouldn't 
We shouldn't view this in any way as a, as a physical extension uh, of, uh, of the human body of Jesus or something, something uh, weird like that. Similar text again in 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. That's almost an identical statement to the statement in Romans uh, 12 and verse 5. So in, in Romans 12... 1 Corinthians 12, right, you've almost got parallel statements here using this metaphor of the church um, as the body of Christ. And let's, let's ask ourselves, what's the theological significance of that? Well, first of all, let me ask you a question. What, did, what is the source? Where did Paul get this idea of the church as the body of Christ? And, and the simple answer is, I have no idea. Um, but, but there are lots of speculations, and one is that Jesus kind of alluded to it, not quite, but kind of alluded to it in John 15 when he used the, the metaphor of the vine and the vine branches, that, that there are individual branches, but there's one vine tree. So it's the same idea of one and many. Uh, my, own, my own view has more or less um, descended on, on how important this was to Paul, that the the experience of Paul on the Damascus Road, when you know he's 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 signing documents consenting to the death of men, women, and children, but in Stephen, godly Stephen, he hears this voice: "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting?" one of mine, Stephen, but why are you persecuting me? As though when you touch Stephen, you touch me. Now, now you know, anyone who's a parent here can identify with that. I mean, somebody messes with your children, right? No, nobody can tell off your children. You can tell off your children, but if, you know, if I come and tell off your children and I bypass you, I mean, that's kind of a no-no. I've, 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 I've passed like a hundred barriers here. And, I, and I've interfered, interfered in something that, that, that we regard as fairly sort of sacred here, the, the, the relationship between a parent and, and, and their own children. Um, don't, don't try it. Um, you know, mama bear will, will, will react uh, instantly. You touch one of my children and, and, uh, and, and you might as well be, be saying something to me. And, and I, th- I think that idea for Paul, you know, I doubt... I doubt Paul ever went to bed at night without thinking of, of what he once was. You know, every day as Paul reminded himself of what the gospel is, he, he would be reminded that he was, he was not just a blasphemer, but he almost single-handedly wiped out the New Testament church. I mean, he was within, he was within inches of wiping out the New Testament church. And I think that when he hears that voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I, I think for Paul, the, the closeness of the identification of the church with Christ, the church as, as an extension of Christ's body. You know, when we think of the body, you can think of it in terms of, you know, if Jim Augustine were here, maybe he says, well, he's not here because I'm going to speak in layman's terms now, but you, you, think, of, you think of what's going on in your brain, and you think about electrical activity and, and you think about how complex and so on. But, but 
Where do you feel pain? Well, it, the electrical impulses are somewhere in your brain, and I'm speaking as a layperson now, right? But, but you feel it in, in the body, right? It's in your arms, or in my case, if I, I'm not doing this to get sympathy. I'm just using it as an illustration, but if I move my arm, I can feel it in my shoulder. Th that kind of thing. You touch him, you touch me. The body and the head. Um, most likely then, the source of it is the Damascus Road. That, that's my view. Um, another, another theological significance of the body, um, the union of believers. We are many members, but we are one body. We are one people. That's true at an individual congregational level, and it's true at a denominational level, but it's also true at a universal level. There is a union of believers. You know, when you say something or do something, the whole... The whole body is going to be affected by it. You know, if you, if you, if you sin and lapse, you, you, you can't say, well, you know, what I do in my own private time is my own affair. You know, I have my public life and then I have my private life. And if I want to do this in my private life, then that's my own business and it's none of your business. But you can't say that anymore. You're a Christian. You belong to the Church of Christ. So if one member suffers, all the members suffers along with it. So the, so the idea of the union of believers, um, the idea of, thirdly, the head of the church. If there's a body, there's a, there's a head. And, and although the metaphor of body is confined to Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul actually uses the other half of it, the head part, in, in other epistles, in uh, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1.18. Um, Christ is the head of the church. Where rule and thought and will uh, is exercised. We are in relationship to a, a head. And the metaphor is here, we, we are in relationship to a brain, a, a thinking part of us, a conscious part of us, a willing part of us, except that now the head here is Christ. Um, and a gifting uh, part and a strengthening uh, part. So let's take Ephesians 4 just as, uh, just as, one, uh, just as one example uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 7 and 8, quoting as it is from, uh, from uh, one of the Psalms. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 7. Uh, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, he's introducing the idea, uh, not, not the grace of justification. We all Every member of the Church of Christ receives the grace of justification. But this is the grace of God's gifting. And that grace of God's gifting, the grace of God's 
providence in which he places us and, and, and empowers us and enables us, that's different from one Christian to another. According to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, uh, he led uh, captivity uh, he, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is citing from Psalm 68. It's the Psalm uh, of Ascension, as we sometimes say. And the idea is a, a very simple idea that, that when, when, you, when you are victorious in war, you come back, you, you lead a host of captives. You lead those whom you've conquered and you, and you bring them back. You can imagine in ancient Rome, for example, in in the context of Ephesus as one of the great Roman colonies, the idea would be very familiar to the readers in Ephesus of a, of a conquering general bringing back the trophies of his victory, um, slaves, uh, and, and, and leading them captive and distributing gifts. Uh, it was within the interests of a general in the Roman Empire to distribute the proceeds of his, of his conquering the plunder uh, to the people to be to be because he he wanted to further his political ambition and, and further his advancement perhaps within the Senate and and in Caesar's case in becoming an emperor and so on. So he would give away all of what he had what he had plundered in order to secure within what was still a relatively democratic system, though though uh, Caesar put pay to that himself, but but uh, the the idea here is of the distribution uh, of these gifts. Well, in Jesus's case, when when he ascends, when he's victorious over the grave, he as the head now distributes to the body gifts. Now I have a table here. Uh, you know, there's no, as I say in uh, point number six there, there's no comprehensive list of gifts in the New Testament. There are, there are various lists in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, there are two of them, and in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, which we're looking at here, and 1 Peter chapter 4, 11. Uh, these, these would be examples of lists of gifts. The most, uh, the lengthiest one is in 1 Corinthians 12. So there are, there are wisdom gifts, like uh, let's, take, let's, take the, uh, let's take the list in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, for example. And you've got apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, healing gifts, for example. Um, uh, help, the gift of, of help, of perhaps leadership, um, administration, tongues, and so on. These are, these are just a list of gifts. Uh, as you look at these lists, uh, you can begin to discern uh, perhaps a, a, a distinction uh, between gifts that are temporary and gifts um, that may last for the duration of the church until the second coming. Uh, for example, here um, there, are, there, are, there are word gifts uh, like, like being an apostle and a prophet and a teacher and so on, these all had aspects of, of, of 
teaching and, and preaching and exhorting. They are primarily word uh, gifts. Uh, and then there are, then there are other gifts. First um, Corinthians 12, 12 um, suggests that, that some of these gifts are what, what Paul calls signs, or is it 2 Corinthians 12, 12? 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, says that some of these gifts are signs of the apostles. And therefore, that there are certain gifts that die, that, that, that pass away along with the apostles. So there comes a point in the history of the New Testament church when you no longer have apostles. Now, now the term apostle can be used in a definite sense and in a broad sense in the New Testament, but in the definite sense, say, of the twelve, uh, think of... Uh, Think of how, how it was necessary to elect uh, Matthias to replace Judah so that there would be 12 apostles, uh, just as there had been 12 tribes of Israel, perhaps. But, but once, once those apostles, and Paul is, a, is an example of an apostle, uh, and, and, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that was necessary to be an apostle in that sense was that you had actually seen uh, the risen Christ, and that's why Paul, uh, when, he, when, he's, when he's defending his apostleship, because his, his position as an apostle was often uh, under, uh, under suspicion, and he's often, like in the whole of Second Corinthians, he seems to be trying to defend uh, his apostleship. But once those apostles have died, when they buried the last one, uh, th- there was no more that gift, which was a temporary gift, Think of how Paul speaks in Ephesians of building upon the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. So there's a foundation level of apostles and prophets. But now we have the Word of God. Now we have the New Testament canon. Uh, Some some, uh, folks, uh, let me me, uh, suggest uh, Sinclair Ferguson... Uh, as an example uh, of somebody who's in print as, uh, as believing that in 1 Corinthians 13, right, in between lists of gifts in chapter 12 and again in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, where you have all those verses about tongues and, and, and prophecy and so on, in between you have in 1 Corinthians 13 the chapter on love, and, and in that chapter Paul says, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. What does Paul mean by that? And Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, says that that means the canon of Scripture. Now, not everybody, I'm not sure that Dr. Davis, for example, would hold to that view. Uh, Certainly colleagues of mine uh, at the seminary certainly wouldn't hold that view. Uh, and, and they believe that when that which is perfect is a reference to the second coming rather than the canon of Scripture. So, so there's debate as to what Paul might mean precisely by that statement, when that which is perfect is come. But that would be, that would be an illustration of the idea that certain gifts are temporary and certain gifts are for the duration of the church. So gifts like, like healing, 
that's not to say that God doesn't heal today. He does so sovereignly. I believe, I believe that. I, I have no qualms about saying that God performs miracles in that sense sovereignly. But I, I don't believe that somebody has the gift of healing. You know, that, that you can send $10 and they'll send you a handkerchief because they've blessed it. And you can lay it on your shoulder or whatever and all your troubles will disappear. I, I don't believe that gift exists in the church. Now, I know there are gazillion stories. Each one is different and so on. Uh, and and, and um, uh, gifts that are temporary, gifts that are for the duration of the church. And uh, some of these gifts, and that's, that's part of the discernment, that's part of what we w- would need to sort out. What, what, are the, what are the temporary gifts, like apostles, like, like prophets, somebody who, who comes with a word of prophecy, a word of speaking, a word about the future, Carrying, carrying the weight of thus saith the Lord. Not, not somebody who has a gift of wisdom and, and a gift, gift of discernment and has looked into the, the signs of the times and says, you know, my prediction for the future is based on these ten things and so on. And, and that's, that's something else. That's, that's, that's something else. But, but to say with, with absolute authority... Uh, based on uh, based on a thus saith the Lord uh, basis that 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 gift of prophecy has uh, ceased. Now we still have five minutes. Um, uh, let's uh, let's look at um, point seven underneath that that list of gifts, for example. Um, Let's note just some general things. First of all, the primacy of word gifts. Uh, irrespective of whether you agree with temporary versus duration of gifts, even, even if you were to believe that, that all of those gifts continue into the present, what's evident from this list of gifts is that there's a primacy given to word gifts. Uh, gifts... Uh, gifts of preaching, gifts of teaching, gifts of um, exhortation. Uh, notice, uh, notice uh, a second thing. Let's let me get you to turn. If you have your Bible, but I'm going to read it uh, in Romans 12. Uh, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Right, and he's about to he's about to say. Uh, we are one body, but there are many gifts. And then in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So, so, so we are, we, there are many, many gifts. But notice how he begins that, that line of thought that no one should think too highly of themselves. You know, the person who introduces himself, and this has happened on more than one occasion, the person who's introduced himself to you and has said, you know, my gift is... And, and people do that. They, I mean, they introduce themselves to you and say, you know, my gift is such and such. Uh, you know, when, when, when God has given to you an extraordinary ability, you must remember the source from where that gift came. And that should make you more humble. That, that's what he's saying. This is a... This is a, this is a, 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 a warning here not to get puffed up with 
with pride, for with gifting and ability also comes pride. You see that in the natural world. You see that in the church too. Um, to burst that balloon of pride. Uh, notice the role of love. Then, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Notice Paul is going all over the map here in terms of gifts. I mean, one gift is that God has given you a lot of resources. This church is immensely blessed uh, in a way above the norm here uh, in terms of the fact that we meet in this building because of the generosity of certain individuals in this church. Uh, the decor and, and ambience within which we meet on a Wednesday evening is due to the generosity, yes, of the widow's might, but very especially of the one who gave with cheerfulness. That, that's a gift. God has blessed you in this world, blessed you in business. You have the mind as touch. You set up a business and it, and it, and it profits. And that's a, that's a blessing, that's a gift that God has given to you. And, and, but that gift is a gift that must be used for the Lord and to be used with cheerfulness. Or if it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's the guy who exhorts and exhorts with love and exhorts with tenderness. You know, gets you motivated when you're down. Gets you to see the bigger picture. Gets you to see what's important and what's trivial. Sometimes slaps you across the head. I mean, metaphorically. You know, and, and tells you, you know, look to Jesus. See the bigger picture. He's, he has that gift. She has that gift of exhortation. Maybe it's a gift of service. If service in your serving. Uh, you know, that's part of the reason for the green... Who are the green, the green aprons? Uh, what do you call yourselves? Brigade. The Green Brigade. The Green Aprons Brigade. These, these, these beautiful men and women who wear green aprons when we ever, whenever we have a meeting, lunch, dinner, and uh, it, it's a demonstration of service. Um, you've been elected a deacon. And use that gift. That's your gift. The church has recognized that gift in you. You have the ability to serve. Uh, and serve as one who serves not for yourself, for your personal gain, but for love of others. So notice, uh, notice these texts here. I've, I've uh, cited Romans 12.3. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 4.7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did, uh, as if you did not receive it? Uh, recognizing that all of the gifting we have from the head. Where do our gifts come from? From the head. We are the body of Christ. Different members within that body. But the distribution of those gifts within that body comes from the head. He is the source of it. 
and, and, and uh, that's how the church functions. Well, the church is the body of Christ. Well, we're going to break, and uh, a few minutes we'll start our time of prayer, but let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this beautiful image of the church as a body, a cohesive body with many parts and members and different gifts and abilities and all of it working harmoniously together, uh, contributing as every joint supplies to the unity of that body with Christ as her head. And uh, pray, Lord, uh, for ourselves that we might demonstrate that cohesion of the unity of the body of Christ in the distribution and use of our many different gifts, uh, and all for the glory of our Lord Jesus. It is in his name we ask it. Amen.